Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. For 10 days in November, Defend and Extend's public housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately $6 billion plus per year for public housing. House 1 million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments and most importantly of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR Pro-Palestinian Happily Proud Radio. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Oh, that was high. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Good morning, this is Annie, and uh, you're listening to 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, in the studio, we've got me, and we've got... Rebecca, yay! yay. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you again. Yes, yeah. it's good to be back. And uh, you're going off to do something quite exciting, not just because it's voting day for Victorians, uh, but yeah. you're doing something more exciting. Yes. What? What is it? Well, uh, the Change Hip Hop Musical, uh, this very uh, beautiful <laughs> Saturday in November, we're going up to Castlemaine to perform today. So, ah, exciting. Yep. Yeah, so this this is a group of people that have been working on, uh, and we've had performances that in yep. Collingwood, mm. and and it's it's about taking art, making art uh, a vehicle for social change. Yes, a hip hop 
musical yeah. for yeah. all those people out there who are keen on musicals. I must say that I'm not so keen on musicals, but I'm sure I would be keen on this one. Yes, I think you would be. It's it's definitely not in the. Uh it's nothing like those <laughs> musicals that I think you're, <laughs> you're talking about. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Uh, where they all live life and then all of a sudden dance around the place yes. like mad maniacs. But anyway, by the by, uh, we're going to, uh, to uh, talk about, uh, we've got lots of things to give you today. Mm. Uh, I went off uh, in October, I went down to the international, new international bookshop, which is uh, in. Uh, Trades Hall here in Melbourne and uh, they have a series of talks going on throughout the uh, year and this particular talk was Jeff Sparrow talking about his new book called Trigger Warnings. It's a book published by Scribe and uh, he was in conversation with Roz Ward and there's a number of quite interesting things that he's talking about in this book Trigger Warnings. So we'll start the morning off with that. Actually, this book was commissioned by Scribe in the wake of the 2016 election because that election, I think, was a shock to lots of people that here is this odious figure, a figure who couldn't be designed to be more odious than he is, who won the American election. And that year, of course, Pauline Hanson returned to Australian politics. So there was clearly something going on. So it was originally supposed to be a book about Trump. And as I started working on it, I quickly realised that um, people were going to be very sick of people talking about Trump very soon and that there wasn't enough to sustain um, a book about that. But the question of political correctness, the question of identity politics and the issues around that have been something I've been thinking about um, for a while. And I think we all know this is not necessarily the happiest debate to engage in. Um, it's a, it's a sub subject about which people feel very strongly for obvious reasons and it's a debate that can often become very heated and sometimes vitriolic to the extent that um, very often these are subjects that people don't really want to engage in because they think it's going to be sort of nasty and, and bruising. So there, there are a lot, a lot of people I think who have things to say about these subjects but perhaps think twice about before engaging in them. But I feel like 2016 was a little bit of a wake-up call around that because, you know, it was clear that year, if it wasn't already clear, that um, politics in the world today is fairly serious. You know, um, there's just been a new climate change report that's come out that makes it clear that... Um, Unless something very radical happens very, very soon, great swathes of the planet are going to become uninhabitable. You know, we're talking about polarisations of wealth that haven't existed throughout the entirety of human history and now becoming commonplace throughout Western societies. And in this context, it's a context in which the ideas of the left are more important than they've ever been before are more urgent and more relevant. But one of the things that became apparent in 2016 was that not only was the left not making breakthroughs in a context that you would think would suit the ideas of the left, uh, a period in which most people are profoundly disengaged and profoundly unhappy with the status quo, yet left-wing ideas weren't um, getting any purchase, 
But increasingly, it was the far right that was taking up a rhetoric that had previously been associated with the left. The most obvious example of that, I guess, is the idea of elitism and anti-elitism. And if you say that today, you sound like fucking Milo or someone. But, you know, this is a core idea of the left. The notion that social inequality is a bad thing. The notion that a small um, percentage of society control most of the wealth. The 1%, as we said back in the um, anti-corporate movement. And yet this was an idea that was becoming um, associated with the right and, and not the left. And so that was kind of the impetus for the book, I guess, this, this sense that the left wasn't making gains in a period in which the left should be. And I'm, one of the problems, I think, is that the right has a confidence with these ideas that were previously associated um, with the left. And I'm not trying to suggest that coming up with a correct position or coming up with a better understanding of identity politics, the issues around it, is some sort of magic solution that will like propel the left into power. That would be an idiotic idea. But I do think it's an area in which um, we are bogged down in debates that we are very often not winning, and so it's important to try and rethink those arguments, if only because at the moment we are being distracted by debates where we're not winning and we're missing the debates where we should be. So just to be a bit more specific about the context I get I guess and about around Trump and um, some of the specific contemporary um, alt-right phenomena um, and I was just saying that now when I go onto YouTube unfortunately down the side of recommended videos I I get Jordan Peterson because I've watched quite a lot of his videos and um, I'm really trying to get my head around like what's the appeal of someone like him and you talk about the intellectual dark web. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of the alt-right and the appeal of people like Jordan Peterson and others who, who are telling young men to tidy their rooms and you know like Donald Trump saying in the wake of Kavanaugh and all of that that the group of people who should be most worried in American society are young men right now, you know, that those kind of ideas, which clearly do have an appeal that get a crowd cheering and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was at the um, March for Men a few weeks back doing a piece on it at The Guardian, and it wasn't a very large event, but it was kind of striking the way... Um, that these debates about masculinity have become so central to the far right, that they're able to organise perhaps 500 people to um, this event. Jordan Peterson is a really interesting example of the phenomenon that I'm talking about. How many people here have read his book, The 12 Rules for Life? Has anyone read it? Have you read some of it? You can find it at any airport. If you're waiting for a plane, just read it in the bookshop rather than giving him um, the money for it. But it's a really interesting example of this phenomenon because he's an arch-reactionary figure. You know, he's someone... He was a, formerly a fairly obscure psychology professor who came to prominence by his refusal to correctly gender someone in um, Canada. That was the event that propelled him to fame. And since then, he's become phenomenally popular and successful. I think his Patreon earns him something like a million dollars a month. This is just people pledging him money so he can continue um, his, his, his work. And that book is 
a really interesting project. In some ways, it's it's completely reactionary. It's you know, it's a theory of human nature that's based on observations about lobsters, you know, and how the male lobster behaves to the female lobster. You know, the the scientific value of it is um, almost zero. But at the same time, you can kind of see how it works, and you can kind of see the appeal that he's making to disenfranchised young men, because in some respects, this is a book that makes a series of arguments that previously the left would have made. So it offers people a theory of meaning, it offers them something to believe in, it makes arguments about universal values, it makes arguments about morality, it makes arguments about discipline. And these are all values that previously would have been associated with the old left. And you can see how there's a coterie of particularly young men who feel that in 21st century capitalism, their lives have no meaning and no value and are latching on to this grab bag of reactionary nonsense because we're not providing a better alternative to them. And when you put it like that, you know, it, it, it's kind of quite sobering. It's easy simply to dismiss these people as buffoons. And Peterson is a buffoon. I mean, I think one of the good lines in the many reviews of that book, he's a stupid person's idea of what a smart person is like. You know, it's this, <laughs> this sort of farrago of kind of pseudoscience on the basis, you know, to, 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 to justify prejudices and um, traditional conservative ideas. But... At the same time, there are a lot of people in the 21st century who feel that society is not working for them. And these are people who traditionally we on the left would be reaching, and when we're not reaching them, these people are being weaponised by the Jordan Petersons of the world. I mean, it's a bit more complicated than that, but I think that's a good place to, 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 to start, that if we walk away from this field of battle, then other people will walk onto it. Yeah, well, so that's the first part of a, the conversation that uh, uh, Jeff Sparrow uh, was having with uh, Ros Ward down at uh, Trades Hall when he was talking about his new book, Trigger Warnings. Fascinating stuff. Uh, he went on to make uh, some, uh, which uh, a really important point. So we're going to listen to the next bit. Let's get into some of the arguments you make in the book, because you are making an argument. It's not just a set of observations about the world. These are debates that not a lot of people are having, and about identity politics, about trigger warnings of themselves. And so to me, it comes across as more of a critique of the left with some kind of analysis of the right. The Cold War ends, and then there's, we get into these culture wars, and it's sort of a backlash against what the left has achieved or what kind of mass politics, direct politics has achieved, and that's a part of it, but at the same time, it's sort of a false backlash. And that's kind of something I'm interested in because of um, my experiences and the way that already it's sort of framed in academia as this backlash against, you know, the left has come so far and now, of course, there's going to be a reaction and we can kind of feel comfortable with that because we've won so much in terms of LGBTI liberation or something, and now there's a backlash and that sort of proves we've done really well. But I'm not sure if that is um, kind of the case, and that's partly what you're arguing in here, is that the backlash is 
it's sort of an almost invented backlash against the left, particularly in the 80s, when why do you need a backlash when you've got neoliberalism? Well, maybe you need to invent one because you have to push through all these anti-working class policies, all of these neoliberal economic reforms in, in, you know, under Reagan and Thatcher that if working class people were too conscious of all of what that was about, they would probably resist. Whereas if you introduce all of these ideas about culture and, and race and um, gender and identity and sexuality, then we can talk about that while all the neoliberal stuff just carries on. So that idea of like, how much is a natural backlash and how much is an invented backlash? A couple of things. I, I extracted a, a, a section of this book for The Guardian um, a few weeks back talking about the idea of smug politics, which is a concept I, I talk about um, in the book. The idea that, particularly in the 2000s, what the left came to mean for many people was a series of condescending intellectuals who presented ordinary people as the problem responsible for most of society's ills, whereas in a previous generation, the people had been presented as the solution to racism and sexism increasingly by the 2000s. Um, there was a consensus arising that the people, however you define that, were the source of racism and sexism and transphobia and whatever and had to be monitored and, and um, kept under control. And I think that's a valid argument. The problem is when you make that argument, there are a lot of people who take you as reiterating a common argument that's made by the populist right, where um, I don't know if anyone saw the, the, the story that was just breaking in, in the news today about um, Kimberly Kitchens, a, a, a figure from the Labor right here in Victoria, saying that she's founding a faction in the Labor Party to defend Western civilization. And she's saying that this is going to be a faction based on the quiet wisdom of the working class. And the idea is that the working class is innately conservative, innately sexist, innately backward, and the problem has been that liberal do-gooders are trying to tell working class people what to do. Instead, what left-wing politics, what labour-right politics should entail is simply embracing this notion of the working class as backward and these ideas, these backward ideas of the working class being good. So you find yourself in a strange position where I've written this article denouncing smug politics. In her press release, she was denouncing smug politics, even though from a completely different perspective. So in the book, I talk about how this notion of the working class as innately conservative was developed um, by neoconservative intellectuals in the um, 60s explicitly as an alternative to the traditional left-wing idea of the working class as the font of progressive values. So the traditional left-wing idea is that the working class is the class of progress, the working class is the class of freedom, the working class is the class that will overturn society's iniquities. In the 60s, the neocons begin to argue that in fact the working class are the class of traditional values, the working class are the class of se traditional sexual morality, homophobia, and, and so on, and they're counterposed to a new class elite. You know, this idea of the sort of 
the inner city elite with their drinking their coffee, their cafe lattes and lecturing ordinary people. So there's, there are two versions of class floating around in these debates and I think it's really, really important to try and distinguish them between the traditional old left notion of class as a material concept, a concept about the kind of work that you do and this neoconservative idea of class being something about the ideas that you have in your head. So that's kind of really fundamental to this debate. And um, the other argument that I try to make, which relates to the question that you posed, is to do with the relationship between neoliberalism and neoconservatism. Anyone who lived through the 2000s would remember that strange alliance between, on the one hand, these socially conservative figures who were for family values, were for traditional religion, were for you know, racism and homophobia and all these old values. These people were then aligned with neoliberals who were for market values. And when you try and tease that out, it seems very, very strange because, in fact, you know, if you're for the neoliberal idea of injecting the free market into every aspect of human life, if you inject, say, the free market into, say, sexuality, you end up with pornography. So how is it these people who are obsessed with counteracting pornography are aligned with people who think that market forces should determine all our attitudes towards sexuality or religion? It seems like this strange contradiction. And the argument I make, it's not my argument, but it, it's an argument that, that, that's around and I think um, is worth reiterating, is that there's this strange virtuous circle that the right develops that when you introduce neoliberal reforms, when you introduce deregulation, privatisation, market values into every aspect of human life, because these values are so alien to the way that most people live, because they're so counterintuitive to human values, the notion that we are no more than a cash nexus, that we are no more than market interactions is so fundamentally hostile to most people's moral intuitions there is inevitably a backlash against these ideas. And one form the backlash can take is a retreat into social conservatism. If you're feeling that um, your life is, um, you know, that you can't get a job, if you're feeling that all of the moral certainties that you had previously taken for granted are being dissolved by the forces of the market, one way that you can find meaning of your life in your life is to retreat into religion, to re tr retreat into sort of traditional conceptions of sexuality mm. or whatever. And so you get this strange virtuous circle where neoliberal reforms create a social anxiety which then fosters this neoconservative backlash which encourages people to vote for neoliberal candidates who then introduce more neoliberal reforms which then creates more of a conservative backlash. And we saw that all through the, the, the 2000s, this strange situation where, you know, you vote for John Howard because you're hostile to the gays, and then John Howard gets into power, and in fact, pornography is everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, you vote um, for a conservative candidate because you think that um, Hollywood is too permissive, and in fact, you know, your local music, local movie industry gets um, swept away by the Hollywood juggernaut because um, market forces are unleashed that wipe away um, national industries. 
Do you see what I mean? There's this strange kind of circularity that for a long time worked as a kind of virtuous circle for the right. If I get one thing across about this book, hopefully it's about the potential of ordinary people because I think that's fundamental to the way that this debate is presented today. It's taken for granted by both a lot of the left and certainly the right that ordinary people in Australia are backward and stupid and right-wing and prejudiced. And in the book, I go back to the origins of the social movements that shape the way we think about politics today, the movements against racism, the movements against sexism, the movements against homophobia. And almost without exception, those movements are based on what I call direct politics. That is, they mo those movements are based on ordinary people taking action to fight against racism and sexism and homophobia. If you look at the modern gay liberation movement, the key moment is Stonewall, the Stonewall riots in New York. This is not about scholarly professors writing papers about homophobia. It's about drag queens and street people fighting back against cops. If you look about the origins of women's liberation in Australia, the first major mobilisation was a trade union march. If you look about the, um, the movement against racism in the United States, it's based on people living in the ghetto. And these ordinary people who shape the way that we think about racism and sexism and all sorts of other forms of oppression have been written out of this argument by a kind of new sort of politics that takes for granted that if you're not sufficiently woke to have done a cultural studies course, then you're innately stupid, you're innately sexist, you're innately, you're innately racist. And I'm not trying to suggest that every ordinary person in Australia has perfect politics on race or gender or sexuality, but I am suggesting that um, ordinary people are part of the solution and not part of the problem. And it goes to this question as, what do we mean when we talk about the working class in Australia today? Because most of the time, and I've been already, I've been doing a little bit of publicity for this book already, and if you talk to any journalist about class in Australia, what they take you to mean is people living in the country, almost without exception. That class is about people living in country towns. When they talk about the Labor Party is losing its class base, what they mean is people in, in the country aren't voting for the Labor Party anymore. But of course, if you look at, say, you know, the arguments in a country like Europe, if you look at, say, 19th century political economy, it's just taken for granted the working class is a force of the cities. The working class is counterposed to the country. The working class is modernity. The working class is the future, not the past. So if we're talking about class in Australia in a Marxist sense, not a... Um, not a neocon sense, if we're talking about class in terms of people's relationship to the means of production, people who sell their labour power, we're talking about people who do things like work in a call centre. And if you th if you, as soon as you pose the question like that, well, what do people who work in a call centre today think about same-sex marriage? Of course they're for it. What do they think about sort of avant-garde music? Of course they've got 15 nose rings and, you know, of, of course they're multi-ethnic, of course they're multi-racial. It just goes without saying that, and again, I'm not trying to paint a kind of rose-coloured picture. Uh, mixed in with all of these ideas will be some backward ideas as well. But I think one of the problems that left faces, we've got ourselves into this position where 
we just casually take it for granted that ordinary people are ignorant and need to be educated by us. And that's not necessarily the case. What about if it's the other way around? What about if we need to be educated by the struggles that ordinary people are engaging in? I guess part of the point about trying to write a popular book like this, is not an academic book, it's a popular book, is to reach people who are outside the ranks of the left. I mean, we're having a meeting here in Trades Hall. When you have this discussion in different settings, the kinds of arguments that come up are quite different and phrased quite differently. And if you start to talk about the proletariat, you're immediately erecting a kind of barrier that you then have to um, surmount. So, and I guess in some respects, that's what I see that perhaps a book like this can try to do, that there are people out there who perhaps have no contact with the left who are trying to grapple with um, ideas about identity politics, ideas around... Um, you know, the, the culture wars. These are the contacts they they have with the political debates and they're struggling to make sense of them. Um, and hopefully a book like this might be some sort of compass to try to, to push in a kind of left-wing direction. Sections of the left whose goal is to make a nicer version of capitalism have different strategies based on that um, compared to people who think that actually capitalism is the fundamental problem and we need to find a way to get rid of capitalism, then what are our strategies around that? Whereas it's not a hard-line critique of identity politics. It's, a, it's an engagement with it in a critical way um, that even at that level, there's a fear about um, you know, how people will respond and people have already responded inevitably on Twitter. And people saying, well, if you don't like identity politics, it's because you're a racist and what are you, a white man, like, cis man? And, um, you know, like, of course you don't understand identity politics. So I guess my last um, is those two things. They're not really small questions, but, like, the idea of <laughs> goals and strategies and the idea of in even engaging in this debate with people at this time. This is not a book that's making an argument for revolution, um, and that's a deliberate choice. I, I, I guess as soon as you do that, then there's a whole other argument opens up about what that entails and what that means and, and stuff. That's not a position you have to take in order to engage with the arguments that I'm making there. I mean, look, it's not nice to have people call you a racist or a sexist or, or whatever, but, you know, I, these are kind of serious times. I don't know, like, again, you know, listening to the news today and the, lat the latest um, climate change report came out and here are all the scientists saying that um, without radical action, we are facing temperature rises three degrees, four degrees or whatever. Well, who is proposing radical action? So here are all the scientists saying without radical action, these things are going to happen. Where is the radical action coming from? Which party is proposing it? So... Do you know what I mean? Like, we, we are in this situation where, in, in a funny kind of way, it's no longer utopian to take radical positions. It's utopian not to take radical positions. We have a consensus of the world scientists saying to us that if we don't take radical positions, large sections of the world are going to become uninhabitable. Now, I mean, what kind of sensible moderation says, oh, well, large sections of the world will become uninhabitable? Oh, well shit happens. 
you know what I mean? That that things are so bad now that we have to start asking difficult and uncomfortable um, questions. And you know, I, I don't think the decades to come are going to be very nice. Do you know what I mean? Like, and if the worst thing that happens to you is a few people call your names on Twitter, well, you know, you're not doing too badly. This is Irie Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, you're on 3CR and this is Solidarity Breakfast. It's Annie and Rebecca. And in the studio, we've got... uh, Jenny Davidson, who's come to have a chat with us about something that's terribly important. She's from the Council of Single Mothers, and I notice it's not just the Council of Single Mothers, it's Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, which is right and proper, Jenny. Yes. Good morning, Annie. Yeah, good morning. Good morning, Um, Rebecca. Morning. <laughs> yeah, well, well we, we've come to talk to you because we would like to understand a whole range of things about uh, the uh, activism that is at the core of the uh, Council of Single Mothers. And uh, in this present day and age, it's very important to understand how policy is affecting groups of people in this neoliberal paradise that we're living in and I noticed that one of the things that uh, you've put a statement out on is uh, the expansion of the cashless debit card. Do you want to have a a yarn about the perspective that the uh, Council of Single Mothers has on this? Yeah I would love to. Uh, So the Council of Single Mothers was formed in 1969 so we're 50 next year and so of course the policy environment has changed but the reality is that ever since welfare to work kicked in in the last 20 years of policy it's really tough single mothers are really um, penalized by a lot of federal government policies you know almost as if they're welfare pledges whereas an actual fact you know these are women who are raising great kids in in tough circumstances and um, as if bringing up children isn't actually a job. Yeah. Well, yep. that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And as if you don't have a right to stay home with the children, um, you know that it's only it's only legitimate to stay home with your children if uh, you have a high income earner somewhere in the background, or you put your children in paid childcare as part of the formal economy and go and join the formal economy yourself in some sort of paid or, you know, capacity. And it's interesting that uh, it's still when it comes to uh, uh, single parent homes that uh, single mothers uh, are the, you know, almost 80-something percent of people who are in single parent homes, right? That's right, that's right. So of all the family structures in Australia, the single, um, single mother family is most likely to be living in poverty. Yes. One in four is under the, the poverty line. That's 50% of the medium income. But almost all single mother um, families across different income levels are um, concerned about their current or long-term financial well-being. So we just did a survey of over 1,000 single mothers across the country and over 80% were worried um, about their financial well-being and that's across a range of income levels. It's just, you know, only having one one parent in the family to do all the caring and and the paid work just it just makes the situation really tough 
So, but government policies like the cashless debit card, which is so paternalistic, the everyone in a community is put on it, and the implication is, of course, uh, that you're frittering away your money and you can't manage. Whereas, in actual fact, with single mothers who are in debt, you know, when they get referred on to a financial counsellor, more often than not, the financial counsellor will look at um, at their uh, financial situation and say. Well, you're not doing anything wrong. You no, no, you just money. don't have money. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, and and it's really interesting because the cashless debit card is, has so many echoes of uh, the, um, you know, that sort of bonded slavery where people are brought to work on plantations or somewhere like that from other places, and uh, then uh, oh, they can only buy. Uh, stuff from the store that the uh, boss owns and they're paid in kind and they're Mm. not allowed to actually have and they become indentured slaves, which is exactly the power relationship that a cashless card gives to people. Well, that's right. And look, it, I mean, it's very disempowering and it, it's very humiliating. You can go outside the communities where it's it's mandated and it won't work. Sometimes, And, you know, this is what's really interesting too. For people living on a small budget, there is so much that is a cash uh, exchange that can be a cost-saving, like going to the op shop, going to a market, yeah. and with the cashless debit card, most of your money is locked up. In the cash at debit card, you have only Too a tiny business. amount, yeah. tiny amount. Yeah, that's right. And so we did an interview with a woman in Sedona um, and, you know, it wasn't hard for us to find someone in in Sedona, in South Australia to talk to us about living on the cashless debit card. But the fact that that, that blog, when we posted it on our website, had – Two and a half thousand hits in five days tells you that nobody had gone to the community and spoken to the people there and, mm. and spoken to them. Although about this government, on the card. this no, this government that we've got federally that keep pushing this sort of privatisation of uh, Centrelink, uh, these uh, answers that aren't answers, cashless debit card, which are all tied to big business, uh, they constantly say things like. Uh, but we've spoken to people, we've spoken to the stakeholders. And then you look more closely and you find, actually, they haven't. So in the most recent account, which is something separate, which is uh, the CPSU, which Mm. is the union that handles the, uh, uh, represent people who work for the the government agencies and stuff – with Centrelink, for example, the government has said that despite the fact that uh, this survey shows that people are getting the wrong information uh, from Centrelink, people are being put off uh, when they shouldn't be, that da 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 and this has real consequences, the government then says, but but actually we did, they're, they're performing better or uh, as well as uh, public servants. You know, we, you just got to believe us. Yeah. You just got to believe us. So when we talk to you, who's a representative of people who are actually uh, being affected, can you tell us about what it's like for people, the, the increased casualisation of work, say, for example? Yeah. Look, the casualisation of the workforce has had a huge impact on many single mothers. So there's a lot of entry-level jobs that are casualised. There's there's certain ilk of work that's really almost impossible for most single mothers, and that's shift work and hospitality. So unless you have parents or, you know, a very functional co-working relationship, it's really hard to do anything that starts before school hours or, you know, has differing shifts. 
very hard to find the child support and all of those things. So there's a lot of work that... Or, do, or a way of looking after the children that doesn't just take all your the money that you've well, earned. Well, that's right as well. Um, and, you know, there there was some in-home childcare as well where I, to do shift work, women could get a subsidy on in-home childcare that's actually been slashed as well. Uh, so the casualised work pool that's available is narrowing and women also find that, you know, they just don't get the shifts. There's so many um, single mothers who are underemployed. The irony of the welfare to work, the irony of having moved all of these single mothers um, who were on parenting payment single onto New Start. There was a whole group, 180, that were grandfathered in 2013 that got moved and their income got slashed and the fact the poverty can be traced from that moment is that these families were working and they use that parenting payment single to top up what can be like a, a, a varying amount of income. Yeah. It, it's that buffer between between having enough some weeks to feed the children, or turn on the heating, turn you know, um, you know all those very basic put, put petrol in the car, and a new start. Not only is it a lower amount, but it also has um, you know a lower taper amount. So you you it it you, as soon as you start earning money, you know you earn a very small amount and it starts to drop at forty cents a dollar. So parenting payment single allowed people to earn more money before it started to drop. So it was a safety net that's that's largely gone. And, and in casualised work, it's not that a lot of single mothers are relying on government income. It's that the government income, you know, it's not their sole income. It's, the, it's their most reliable income. Yeah. That's exactly right. And uh, also this business about the cutting of penalty rates. So all the <sighs> sacrifices that people would have made to be able to earn a certain level of money uh, – it's useless. It, there's, ju- there's just the pain, no, no gain. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't lightly give up a weekend with your kids That's as, right. a, as the only yeah. parent or where even if, if you've got shared care, you know, you cherish that time. The only reason you'll give up time with your children like that is for their own financial well-being. That's right. And I don't know if uh, people have uh, realised, but uh, public education, for example, is quite an expensive affair these days. Oh, it's, it's such a huge issue for our families. Yeah. So, there, I mean, there are differing amounts. Public education in Australia costs, in Victoria, differs state to state, um, you know, at least three and a half to 5000 a year. And those costs are increasing. Children are being expected to have their own electronic device at a younger and younger age. Some schools mandate what brand device, which... You know, you can understand Because they've got some deal going. Yeah, yeah, and the teacher wants everyone to have the same thing. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. you know, then you can't get a bargain. Sometimes the school mandates the supplier. Mm. And then, of course, there's uniforms, there's books. And, you know, you've it's got... It's really a, you've quite got frightening. A, and yeah. you've got an electronic device and you still have to buy textbooks. And then there's, you know, um, school fees. And schools aren't usually uh, necessarily applying the policies correctly around what's optional and what's, what you're supposed to pay. Yeah, and it's just creeping up, creeping. It's like this. It's a terrible. And when you've got children, you you are you are responsible. You need to work very hard to get a result. But you know, it can only stretch so far. Well, this is the thing about single mothers: is that you know they're still being marginalised. Um, there's 765,000 single mother families in Australia that are raising at least 1.5 million children. They're still being marginalised and, and, and treated as if they're you know sort of 
you know, not, you know, they're doing something. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's still stigma. And yet, you know, this raising of the next generation, this stepping in, you know, when, when what is often the case is a relationship breakup, stepping in, having 70, 80, 100% custody of your children shouldn't mean that's a fast track to poverty for your children, which undermines their future. And these women, you know, their long-term trajectory is also poverty in retirement if they're paying yes, rent. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, I went to a conference about a month ago at Geelong Trades Hall um, and the women there were talking about, yeah, their, how all the work that they do at home is not recognised mm. uh, and it's, yeah, they were talking about all of these issues, um, yeah, from a union perspective and how how women are have been oppressed for so long and it's just continuing um yeah it's basically backing up all the things you're saying is what they were talking about yeah the uh it's i was actually talking to i mean i know this is all hearsay and all this but this is relieved experience i was talking to somebody who uh wants to be a journalist and studying it and uh interestingly enough she comes from a family that's uh uh, you know, she lived with her mum, but far, but, and, uh, we were talking about the concept of having as broad an experience as you possibly can so that you can understand different people's perspectives. Uh, and, uh, she was saying, oh, well, that's interesting because, you know, we lived in a public housing with my mum. But when she went and lived with her dad for, you know, when they had the, it was actually quite palatial. And, uh, and I, and it struck me as, be, and of course, the expectations and desires and what, the, what society is supposed to be offering you are completely different p- uh, points of view. Left-handed luck, because it actually gives you a broader perspective on life. Uh, but isn't that fascinating? Two families f- out of the one and, uh, such a different economic experience. It's not at all uncommon. And the reality is that it's, it's not single mothers, um, that are relying on the government to cover the costs of children. So often it's that the fathers have defaulted, defaulted on the cost of raising their children. So they're the ones leaving mm. it up to the government to pay for the cost of raising their children. The unpaid child support debt in this country is $1.5 billion, and that only represents families that are going through the child support agency. That's mm. only half of the families doing child support. The other half are through a system called Private Collect, which the government blithely assumes is paid in full and on time which of course isn't the case. So it's, it's far more than $1.5 in unpaid child support. But on top of that, you know, the assessment, a friend was just telling me that uh, she's got two children. She's been on her own since before the birth of the second one for very good reasons. And she just got assessed for child support for her two children. It was was $456 a year. What? That's <laughs> not even $5 a week each for oh a child. No, and her ex is on the dole. And, oh, yeah. I mean, how does that help? That mm. doesn't even cover the school fees for a public education in Victoria. But it also means that the uh, other partner is actually unable to, to pay. So mm. that means that we actually have to have a competent social system. Mm. Yep. Basically, that's what we, we basically need. What are the... Uh, uh, big uh, campaign items for uh, the Council of Single Mothers and Their Children leading up to what will be the next federal election? 
We were very excited that we're going back to our roots of mobilising single mothers. So we've been advocating for change since 1969 and providing practical support. We have a telephone support line. The single mothers can ring. We provide emergency relief money to single mothers in Victoria. But we are going back to getting single mothers um, involved in making the changes they want to see happen. Um, And so um, that means things like uh, we need to get some petitions up and running around the costs of schooling, the fact that Children in single mother families are missing out on um, extracurricular activities. Uh, you know, it's the these children's and future. And it's not charity. People, no. This, the people shouldn't be experiencing this as charity. This should be a bottom line approach to proper societal living. And it's well-being, it's, it's building our future generation. You know, the, these um, they're members of our community and things like playing sport and learning music um, not only gives them opportunities to thrive and for better resilience, but it also um, ensures that, that these children are fully integrated with us, with our community. They should have every opportunity to thrive, yeah. but it's also good for the whole community. So it's, um, it's not the number or the gender of your parents that does any damage to kids, it's the poverty. Mm, that's right. So ensuring that families have you know enough money to get groceries on the table is one of them. Ensuring that schools are properly applying policies around um, you know what are, what school fees are mandatory and what what how do you support a family that can't afford them um, without marginalising those children and and you know impacting on their education. So we'll be working on some education issues. And we also, of course, at a federal level, we're always working on um, income, equitable income. Uh, single mothers, obviously, new start is too low, but really single mothers should be on parenting payments single, not until yeah. the youngest is eight, which is not an age when you can leave them at home and return to work, but until the, their youngest is 16. Uh, that's a long bow, but it's that's probably not going to happen by the federal election. <laughs> no, but that's the aim. Yeah. yeah, and there's some changes around child support that are really important as well. Do you uh, are you affected by this notion of de- the deserving poor and the uh, and the undeserving poor? Is that look, is that what's going on? Look, it absolutely is. It's not as much as when it was started. When when the organisation was started, there were government benefits if you were widowed or if you were a divorced woman. But if you were a, you were an unwed mother or if you left a relationship, a marriage, probably because it was violent, you didn't get a government benefit. So that's classic you know, deserving and undeserving poor. I mean, women were giving babies up for adoption, single mothers, because they were being forced to by financial and social pressures. And our organisation was instrumental in getting the first supporting mother's benefit, which the Whitlam government did in 1973, as soon as it was in office. And the adoption rate plummeted. Mm. These days, it's, it's, it is more subtle, uh, but there isn't any question that, that the uh, single mothers sort of framed as as undeserving, or as an actual fact, you know. Oh, that conversation uh, which you hear sometimes or used to hear, oh, they just have children so that they can have a, a benefit. flat screen TV or right. something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, there's someone that hasn't priced the cost of raising children, Yeah, you know, or, you know, single mothers. Are, what a politician said not that long ago in WA that single mothers are too fat and lazy to keep a partner. It's like, really? really? Wow. Yeah, I know, like outrageous, outrageous. Yeah. It was a One Nation politician in, in WA. Mm. So this is how they, that's how they think. It's uh, so obviously the, uh, the road for women in general is still one that is littered with uh, moronic 
uh, comment. <laughs> yes. I know um, just going back to the cashless welfare card, mm. I know Aboriginal communities are very much uh, advocating against it as well um, because they're being targeted with this um, yeah, system where they can't control their their own money. Yeah, yeah, along with other, you know, very punitive government systems. So yeah. they think that these uh, they're targeting people that they think can't fight back, but you're you're trying to tell people that you're going to fight back. Well, that's right. And also, you know, I mean, self-determination is fundamental for Aboriginal communities. Success yeah. doesn't look like becoming whiter and functioning in our society. You know, <laughs> Getting your like, white boys. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's so many. I mean, in Victoria, the, the place that has all of the, you know, these government policies trialled is Shepparton. Yeah. You know, and you can't go out there and, and force sort of work readiness and, and, you know, job readiness and all this stuff mm. if there's no jobs to go to anyway. Thanks for coming in, Jenny. Oh, it's it's great. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to move You're on. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when we discovered that, like Lord Rupert of Wapping, when the news Lord Rupert-style news of the world scandal struck, who knew absolutely nothing about it, nor did his sons who helped run the joint, our big bank supremos and chair people and directors and anyone who mattered also knew absolutely nothing about the few little problems like charging fees for no service. Why not? They charge fees for everything else, like being served, if we could call that service, or providing income insurance to unemployed people. Well, it's not a bad incentive to go out and get a job so you can lose it and claim. And all the rip-offs, but we'll re- return to that because primarily a week when the nervous excitement of the state election reached a crescendo. The aforementioned Lord Rupert desperate to set us straight, to correct the calamitous mistake the electorate made four years ago, yet also aware the evil Greens are even worse than the disastrous Socialists, but for God's sake, don't vote for either of them. While the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review has conceded the Socialists will probably win, but don't deserve to. Which presumably means that the caring business class party does deserve to. Its dynamic, charismatic leader, the lobster with a mobster, putting the final touch on these progressive policies by promising to open and close. Open the state trade office in Jerusalem, move it from Tel Aviv. Sort of a mini US of the UN of the US of the world, Big Supremo Donald and our own Big Supremo Scuttlebem. Although the policy works so well for Scuttlebem that that alone says wonders for the lobster wit's political genius. Especially since the Kerry business class point out, Tel Aviv is the financial capital and so we'll be moving away from it. Open and close the safe injection facility, but for those who don't therefore die on the streets, he's got them covered by his major policy to build 133 or so, give or take, new prisons to address the serious problem of a declining crime rate, which, as our federal keeping us secure Minister Constable Peter Duffer has bemoaned, makes people too afraid to leave their homes, and especially to sit down at a restaurant 
So to be fair, Lobster with a Mobster should promise to compensate all restaurant owners for the losses emanating from the socialists and greens pro-terrorist, pro-black African gang surrender and also offer all restaurant owners a state funeral because only the rich deserve state funerals. But that's a bilateral policy, not like the terrifying unilateral policy unearthed with invaluable investigative journalism by Lord Rupert. Headline Thursday, Green's plan raises fears. A diabolical plan. Listener, sit down. You'll need to sit down. To change planning rules enforcing minimum apartment sizes, eight-star sustainability ratings and inclusion rezoning to mandate affordable housing options in new developments, which would, as Lord Rupert points out, quoting several stunned developers, only increase the costs of housing. In fact, in Lord Rupert's terms, send costs of apartments skyrocketing like the apartments themselves, and worse, force renters to pay as much as $50 extra a week. The people Lord Rupert so cares about, how cruel, how heartless, forcing developers to build apartments people can live in, when developers obviously build tiny, energy-sapping, unaffordable, affordable apartments so people can afford the unaffordable affordable. And I do wish someone would give us a more definitive definition, tautology, of affordable, because then we could wander into the city and tell all the homeless we encounter just how much they have to save from the loose chains thrown in their hats or whatever to be able to rush out and buy a tiny, energy-sapping, unaffordable, affordable apartment. Although if that's the case now, the case the evil Greens want to destroy, then we can but ponder why all those homeless people haven't already got their own little apartment. Must be their own fault, wastrels. And full marks to the lobster with a monster, a mobster for promising to provide all those ruse over people's heads, as long as they don't mind looking at the world through bars. And, and prisons reminds me, I'm sure you realise, listener, we're still on the first sentence of today's week that was. And if the evil Greens could evoke such vitriolic warnings from those who know how we should think, imagine the next four years if the evil, evil socialists not the pejorative Dan lot, but the evil lot, win a seat because they're likely to propose real threats to the greatest little economic order of them all. Phew! End of sentence. End of our in-depth coverage of our four-yearly exercise of parliamentary democracy. Lord Rupert and the rest of the media deserve full marks for a restraint for their treatment of the freed Bali 9 drug mule Renee Lawrence upon her release, treating her with such sensitivity, respecting her feelings and privacy and confusion in Bali, Brisbane and Sydney. Also quite interesting yesterday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, the day after her release. Unlike the swarms invading her in Bali, Brisbane and Sydney, not a word, not a line. Obviously her name isn't Chappelle. But last week we mentioned Lord Rupert did devote quite a few lines to a Greens-dominated council holding an anti-Cole Carol's night, changing the words of popular carols and how this was so cringe-worthy and made the Greens the Grinch that stole Christmas, according to Lord Rupert and the Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs. 
but one of the supermarket uh, duopoly changing a popular carol to, to promote itself in a ubiquitous ad must be, by dint of their silence, putting the fun, fun, fun into Christmas. Well, the other duopoly mob are promoting the urgency of order by a certain time for guaranteed same-day or next-day delivery. And I thought, it's really urgent because there's only 30 more shopping days till Christmas. And there's one salt, sugar and fat million calories per bite product they're pushing with a dear, dear little child saying, I want to lick the plate, which could be the case because if he's and he's and he's a uh, he, dear, dear little child, his parents bought all their Christmas fare at the Duopoly's prices, he probably needs to lick the plate. He'd be near starvation, poor little kid. Although he'd be starving on the highest of high-quality products, because I notice their fruit and vegetables are usually only about four, five, or six times more expensive than when I pay at the market. So clearly, they must be amazing quality. That most sensitive of men, US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, has heeded the advice of advisers that he not listen to tapes of the murder of good, good Saudi, evil, evil journalist Jamal Khashoggi, because it's a suffering tape, a, a terrible tape. And Donald said the good old CIA conclusion that Donald's very, very, very close friend, the Crown Prince, ordered the murder was very premature. Well, will anybody really know? Donald mused, and Donald is a Donald who really knows what he really knows, unlike Donald Rumsfeld, the Arabs. Like, he was the only person in the whole world who knew evil, evil, evil Iran was breaking the anti-nuclear agreement it signed and must be punished. And anyway, his very, very, very close friend, the Crown Prince, agreed with Donald that the evil murdered was yet another purveyor of fake news. So really, he, he got what he deserved. And Donald seemed to, it's often hard to tell, seemed to lay the blame for Saudi murdering a journalist on evil Iran. And unlike his election attacks on Hillary, who deserved to go to jail, the revelation his daughter had also been using a personal email thingy in the White House was also fake news. Ah, uh, but, but we have proof. It's fake proof. Fake news proof. Due to space, next week we'll cover the merchandise of death manufacturer who wants to use the government's construction code, which some suggest is a touch anti-evil unions, to slash wages and conditions. And as usual, the bloody evil union is opposing it. More next week, but bet you can't wait. If the journalist got what he deserved, not getting what they deserved, these poor banking executives facing the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission, like the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank chair, Catherine Livingstone Workers Sweat, who conceded there was an impression, an impression, executives were punished like being asked to hand back a small percentage of their millions in bonuses only if their sins became public. Well, yeah, Catherine, I think people got the impression, mainly because it was what happened? Except for her predecessor, David Turner, huge prophet, who refused to hand back 40% of his director's fees when the proverbial hit the fan because he explained, clinging firmly to the 40%, he knew nothing about any of the mess splattering from the fan, even though he was covered in it. And for goodness sake, how would he be expected to know he was just chairing the whole show? But the evidence has been consistent. Every witness has sworn she or he knew nothing about any of this, and it was everybody else. Although this hasn't prevented them from promoting progressive policies. Supremo 
Matt Cummin Clean facing the commission. Same day, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline that the bank would turn fully green by 2030 and let's be fair to their credit that puts them right that puts them light years ahead of the major political parties although finally thanks to their policies years won't matter because we won't have too many left but the witch bank fully green by 2030 and i thought Catherine and Matt are bringing all that forward. Good on them, because sitting in the furnace of the witness box, they were already looking decidedly very, very green indeed. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Kevin. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, the um, You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca, and uh, we've had a pretty interesting morning so far, I think. And we're moving on to something that I went to last week, which was Get Up. GetUp has made uh, connections with people like the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and this is how I got a ticket to go and see uh, an event that they held down at the Collingwood Town Hall called Future to Fight for Rethinking Our Economy. So GetUp has decided to do uh, what they'd call, you'd call town hall meetings and uh, there's the one that was one in Melbourne uh, last week on the 20th and uh, there's others going on in places like Sydney and Brisbane and and other places in the uh, country and uh, they've brought a great uh, group of people to talk to everybody. Uh, one of them was a woman called Dr. Stephanie Kelton and uh, you might already be ahead of me and know who she is. She's a senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders and uh, and she's now the Professor of Public Policy and Economics at Stony Brook University in America. She's a heavyweight and uh, there were other people there too. There were people who uh, had uh, organised uh, uh, Saunders's uh um, social media campaign and uh, as the woman said uh, when she began that work uh, he had a recognition rate of three percent in America by the time it was finished even despite the fact that they failed to get the uh, democratic nomination he still remains the highest rating politician in America after these campaigns, which is fascinating. Um, but the problem is that the recording's not too flash, but we, it's, but what the woman that uh, I want to play you, uh, it, Dr. Stephanie Kelton, says is worth listening, wading through the echo that you get. There's a too big a room, and uh, I didn't arrive early enough to get my mic right square up at the woman's face. But uh, this is a very important uh, piece of information about uh, economy and progressive politics. So let's listen to the first part of this. When Senator Sanders ran for president, he ran on a big, ambitious agenda. Okay, it included lots of things like health care for everybody, and making public colleges and universities tuition-free, and a trillion dollars of infrastructure, and we're going to deal with climate change, and all this really big stuff, right? And what do people say? They said, it all sounds great, Senator Sanders. Just one question. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? And so, what Senator Sanders did with infrastructure. Again, I'm not picking on him. I'm saying this is what's imposed on our politicians by the expectations of the pundits and the political class and the 
journalists and so forth. How are you going to pay for it? Okay, so he answers the question. I want a trillion dollars of infrastructure. How are you going to pay for it? I'm going to close tax loopholes. All right, I want a couple of colleges and universities tuition free. Oh, really? How are you going to pay for it? Oh, that's easy. We're going to have a tax on Wall Street speculation, a financial transactions tax. So we're so accustomed to thinking of taxes as the mechanism by which the government gets money. Okay, taxes are how the government gets the money that it needs in order to fund its budget. But I'm going to suggest tonight, and this is where some of the mind-bending comes in, that that's not actually how we should think about the role of taxes, at least not when it comes to our federal governments. Okay, so what do taxes really do? There's an interesting article by this guy, 1946, pictured here in the corner. His name is Beardsley Rummel. I like this. Beardsley Rummel. Sounds sophisticated, right? You can tell he's smart, because he's called Beardsley. <laughs> and he was the head of the New York Federal Reserve Bank. Okay? He was a Republican. He was a banker. He was a businessman. And Beardsley Rummel in 1946 writes this article, and he, he delivers it as a speech, and then it gets published as an article. And the piece is called, Taxes for Revenue Are Obsolete. Whoa. But, but that's what taxes are for, right? Revenue. No, no, no. 1946, he says, look, here's what happened. The U.S. is writing in the U.S. context. The U.S. has gone off the gold standard. And what that means is that our monetary system is free at last, right? We have opened up the policy space. We are no longer fixed to gold. We now have the U.S. dollar, which is just a floating currency. We can create it at will. And it's not tethered to this finite thing called gold. And it changes everything. So Pierce Rumble goes on to describe all of the ways in which taxes are important that don't have anything to do with funding the government. So one of the things that taxes do is they allow the government to impose their money on the population. I could do an hour on that alone. One of the important things a tax does is allow the government to make you need their money. All right? Okay, another important thing taxes do is they allow the government to collect back some of what they have spent into the economy. So taxes are a way to remove income from the economy so that when the government spends into the economy, it isn't overflowing the economy with its money. It can take some back in order to prevent inflationary pressure. It's an important function of taxes. Another important thing taxes do is they allow the government to say, this population over here has too much. There's too much of a concentration of wealth and income over here. I'm getting concerned about inequality. I'm going to take some of what they have, not because I need it, but because I don't want them to have so much. So taxes are an important way to impact the distribution of wealth and income in the economy. And, I'm going to give me a quick Taxes are an important way to change behaviors. You can slap a tax on something that you want to discourage people from doing, like, let's say, a carbon tax. You can um, provide tax incentives, rebates, and things like that to encourage people to go green, right? Buy more energy-efficient appliances and cars and so forth. So taxes are important for that. One last clip on this slide. 
And then the last one is you might want to have a tax just so you can keep specific track of something like a gasoline tax so that you can show the population uh, how much of an impact driving, right? how much driving is putting a strain on things like the transportation system or something like that. So, so now let's go back to taxing guys like Jeff Bezos and the Walton family that owns Walmart and the Koch brothers. Why might you want to tax these guys if it's not because you need their money? And the answer now is obvious, I hope, because they have too damn much money. It's an oligarchy when it comes to guys with this kind of concentration of income and wealth. And so you might want to tax them very heavily in order to make your democracy, like to recover your democracy, um, to bust up those concentrations of wealth. Why would you want to have a financial transactions tax? Not because you need the money to pay for free college, but because you don't like Wall Street speculation, but you want to discourage it. And so you put a tax on the trading of derivatives and other financial instruments because you want to make it more costly to engage in that behavior, right? So what I'm suggesting is that we, I need a couple more clips here. There, you can stop right there. How about, or you can keep going. I can work it, I can work it. So we've got this all backwards, and we have to reorient the way that we think about the government's budget and government finance and government spending and stop thinking of it like our own books, like our own household budget, okay? So the way we think about it is this way, and this is wrong. We think the government goes out and collects up a bunch of money. It either taxes, that's the T, taxes and borrows, okay? So it goes out, it raises revenue by taxing and borrowing from us so that it can have some money that it can then, in the second instance, spend into the economy. So first they need to find the money, then they have the money, then they can spend the money. This is what we're taught to believe, the way it actually works, and I'm saying this as maybe you heard in the introduction as a former chief economist on the Senate Budget Committee, the way it actually works is that Congress writes a budget. In the U.S., here, Parliament puts together a budget, and they decide how much they want to spend. I right? sit in a room, and they go, I want to spend this much on education, they have a big fight. I want to spend this much on defense and have a big fight. I want to spend this much on transportation and have a big fight. At the end of the day, they come to some agreement, they write down some numbers, they put the budget together, and then they do what? They vote on it, right? And then the president signs the budget, and there's an appropriations process, and it's funded. That's where your money comes from. It comes from Congress authorizing the agencies to spend the amounts that they were uh, allocated. That's it. And the government begins to spend that money into the economy. Nice thing about being a federal government is you have your own central bank. And the job of the central bank is to clear the government's checks, not to bounce them. Okay? So in the U.S., the Federal Reserve is the government's bank. It will clear any payment that's authorized by Congress. Here, it's the Reserve Bank of Australia. The Reserve Bank of Australia will clear any payment that's authorized by Parliament. So you spend the money that the government has been authorized to spend, and then in the process of running your economy, some of that gets taxed back, and you end up borrowing some of it back in the event that you have uh, run a deficit. So it can get complicated, but it doesn't have to get that complicated for regular people to understand enough to be able to say to their government, don't tell 
that you can't afford to whatever it is you're fighting for, because I know that you have the patent on the Australian dollar. Don't tell me you're going to run out of money. Don't tell me you can't afford it. I know better. I know where the money comes from. Right? So the monetary system matters. It matters a lot. And you guys did not do what a country like Portugal or Italy, Greece, you didn't give up your currency and adopt some crazy newfangled thing called the euro. You have a sovereign currency. You've got the Australian dollar. And so you've got policy space available to you that countries that are on the euro simply don't have. And we've got policy space in the US. And Japan does, and the UK does. So the type of monetary system that you have is really important. And the good news is you have the kind of monetary system that gives you the freedom to pay for a big, bold, progressive agenda, okay? So before you start thinking, I know you're already thinking it, what about inflation, right? How many of you are sitting there going, what about inflation? Yeah, so we have to talk about that. So let's get there. Them. 
get off line, plug into this modem. No, you can't outvote them. The rules are still golden. Only jewels we holdin' if we guard our scrotum. If you press the ear to the turf that is stolen, you can hear the sound of limitations exploding. Please, sir, may we have another portion? We're children of the beast that dodged the abortion. Neck plays firm between the floor and the portion. We'll shut your shit down, don't call it extortion. Caution, we're coming for your head. So call the feds and get files to shred. Every textbook read said bring you the bread. But guess what we got you instead? You're back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca. And that is a track from The Coup. And, uh, oh, well, before we move on to that, because we've got a bit of information about this, I apologise for the quality of that uh, uh, pre-record, Dr. Stephanie Kelton, but you've got to agree, it was a really, really uh, excellent piece of information about economy. She goes on to talk about uh, that it's all about priorities uh, really, when you're setting the agenda for a uh, government and when they tell you that they don't have enough money, as people have already been pointing out, they've always got plenty of money for for armaments. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And to support their friends in biz- big business. That's exactly mm. right. So it's really about rejigging and so the fight goes on. And that song uh, from the coup... Uh, the uh, there's a movie that's coming out called Sorry to Bother You, which is uh, uh, directed by Boots Riley. It's uh, he's one of the leading lights in that uh, band called The Coup, and uh, the film itself is full of uh, The Coup uh, rec- uh, music. The music's excellent. The film itself is excellent. It is just such a fantastic critique of uh, modern American and. Uh, uh, economics class and uh, yeah class basically how how often do you get a chance to watch an american movie that actually challenges the class system that's mm. pretty rare yeah. so if you get a chance to see this film sorry to bother you you really should to get out there and and uh, watch it it's it's fantastic it's not only funny but it's 
also incredibly politically astute. It should be on at the Nova in early December, so watch out for it. Uh, it's really worth seeing, I'll have to say. It's it's just it, it was just unbelievable. The great politics, great politics. Oh, one of the other things that um, Dr. Stephanie Kelton uh, wanted to tell us was that the uh, Americans, uh, the Democrats, uh, are putting forward the notion of a jobs guarantee, where uh, they have a system where anybody who wants a job, if they can't find a job then it's the government's responsibility to create meaningful work like at a proper pay, at pro- proper pay as a as a a base rate pay which is for them is $15 american an hour uh when people say oh $15 american that sounds doesn't sound like much but in actual fact the american dollar is stronger than the australian dollar so it probably is relatively comparative to our basic wage. But that's very similar to something that uh, uh, Bill Mitchell talks about. We've spoken to Bill Mitchell, who's a professor of economics at uh, Newcastle University. He talks about how there's no reason for why we shouldn't have full employment. Yeah. Yeah. So that uh, it's not... So all this uh, degradating and outrageous level of homelessness in America, for example... It's, I mean, just gobsmacking to uh, realise. Uh, I don't know if anybody saw David Bradbury's movie um, uh, America and Me, which was just him going around talking to a variety of people as David Bradbury does because he can't help himself. <laughs> and when he was there doing a uh, a tour of American states for another film that he had made, he couldn't help himself. He went out with his camera and started to talk to people on the street. And what he was finding was all these people who were homeless were ex-service people yeah. and stuff like that. And you, you sort of think to yourself, how can how can America feel like a a successful country if it can't feed and house its its people? Yeah, it's extraordinary. Anyway, coming up in December, we've got something important. December the first. Yes, so December 1st is uh, a special day for the West Papuan community. Uh, in 1961, the, their Morning Star flag was raised um, alongside the Dutch flag and uh, they were on their road to independence. But then, uh, as probably um, quite a lot of the listeners know, uh, some Cold War politics and other uh, other politics uh, just greed and yeah. uh, and violence, really. Yeah, um, took took centre stage, and Indonesia has occupied that um, West Papua ever since. So, the West Papuan people, um, every December first, they remember uh, that day and raise their flag, and all over Australia, and uh, yeah, I guess um, globally, um, people raise the Morning Star to show solidarity for the West Papuan struggle. It's called Independence Day. Well, by some people, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah, what, what they uh, – it, it was supposed to be their Independence Day, yeah. Mm. And uh, raising the Morning Star flag in West Papua is a killing offence. Yes, yeah. People are either killed or put in jail – yeah, 
<laughs> and so they've found over the years other ways to uh, kind of uh, sh- put the flag, show the flag by making, that's why you see uh, photos of Papuans with the flag painted on their bodies or um, they've put it on bags because, uh, yeah, the Melanesian people are famous for their billums and knockins, which are the string bags that they make. So they make those with the flag on it and they make, you know, bracelets. Anything uh, that they can wear with the flag on it is like a way around that um, and it's a way that they can still express their uh yeah, their identity as West Papuan people. I think, are there going to be events here? I mean, there will be yes. the raising of the flag, but yep. if people want to be part of the events, what do they do? Uh, Can you remember? I, no, I don't exactly know what's happening. I'm pretty sure they're going to join uh, a rally that's happening in the afternoon. On It's on Saturday. Yeah. Uh, so there's going to be a rally already uh, planned in the city and they'll join in that Uh from Federation Square. Um, so about 12 o'clock, you reckon? Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, do they have a website, the West There's, Palpins? there's the uh, website for the office that's down in Docklands, so that's uh, D-F-A-I-T, uh, D-F-A-T, off West Papua, uh, Federal Republic of West Papua. So if you search for that, you'll find, uh, yeah, some information. I know the following week they will be having an open day um, of that office, so that's a good opportunity for anybody who wants to find out what's what's news, what's the latest um, that that the uh, United Liberation Movement for West Papua, what is the latest that they've been up to, you can find out on the 8th. They will be having their open day down we'll, in We'll have more up-to-date information yep. next Saturday, yep. so you should be tuning in. But uh, the day before is at uh, MUA uh, rooms down in uh, Island Street in West Melbourne. There's going to be the big celebration of uh, Eureka. Uh, there's going to be an evening there. Yes. Tell so us about it's it. It's 164 years since the Eureka Stockade uh, and... The democratic and workers' rights are under attack, so the fight continues. Um, There will be a dinner and discussion to celebrate the anniversary and the continuing struggle for a just, democratic and sovereign Australia. What time does it start? Yes, it's at 7. Speakers start at 7pm. Doors open at 6pm. Well, we've got to finish because we've only got three minutes to go. Okay, but we're going to go out with David Robex's fabulous song about Eureka. Yes. And coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. No, I can't find the song there. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one, months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs Discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse 
the diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. Tried to divide them, giving preference to some. The diggers wouldn't have it. They said it's all of us or none. They built the stockade while the redcoats massed nearby, and they heard the miners shouting, "We're ready now to die." The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store, and on one December morning in 1854, the redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall. Amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call, they swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. Things go their way, but when fifteen thousand miners rallied a month later on the day, the crown conceded everything, all of their demands. They'd won an end to license fees, the right to vote and land. So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest. They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard ten thousand miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.